Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, April 21st. In today's news, President Trump says he will sign an order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. The price of oil dropping below zero dollars was an anomaly, but highlights looming economic calamity. And South Korea's government says it cannot confirm reports that Kim Jong-un is in grave danger. But first, the big idea. The caller was 18 years old. He was from Peru and lived with his father. Just the two of them. Everyone else is back in the home country. The 56-year-old father had tested positive for COVID-19, and now the son was unable to wake him up in his bed. When Dave Prina and the other EMTs arrived in North Bergen, New Jersey, there was nothing left to do but express condolences and then ask for the father's ID so they could fill out the paperwork. Dave recalls that when they left, the boy was hysterical on the stairs. Dave's often wondered since then, what's that boy going to do? How will he live? How will he pay next month's rent? But the ambulance call that haunts him is one of literally thousands that they have had to field during a relentless three-week stretch in which the region has become the world's coronavirus epicenter. North Bergen is located just at the other end of the Lincoln Tunnel from New York City on hilly cliffs, part of a constellation of densely populated working-class cities and towns where the virus has flourished. New Jersey now has about 90,000 confirmed cases and 4,500 deaths. As of this morning, the coronavirus has killed at least 42,364 of our fellow Americans, and we've got 787,000 confirmed cases. At least 13 EMTs and 50 police officers and firefighters nationwide have died from the virus. And in a In a pandemic that has killed mostly the elderly, a disproportionate number of the first responders who have perished have been in their 30s and 40s. Two of the dead EMTs are from North Bergen. Izzy Tolentino, a father of two, was only 33 years old. Kevin Leva was only 24. 24. His widow, Marina, says he had always dreamed of becoming a doctor, but his parents didn't have any money and he realized he wouldn't be able to pay for med school. Then one day when he was in college, he received an email that was meant for someone else about a scholarship for a student who wanted to go into emergency medical services. He decided to apply and he got it. Marina said he always felt it was an act of God. Officially, there are 47 people on the North Bergen EMS roster. But after Kevin's death on April 7th, Three of his coworkers just went AWOL. They disappeared, and they haven't been heard from since. A fourth called in to say her husband doesn't want her to come to work anymore, so she's not going to. A fifth paramedic had a breakdown with two hours left to go in her shift last week and had to go home. She hasn't been back. Four other EMTs have tested positive for COVID-19, and they've had to self-isolate, so they're out of the fight. This is a job that pays between $16.50 and in $20 an hour for 12-hour shifts. In an effort to reduce absenteeism, the city's now throwing in an extra $10 an hour as hazard pay. Still, that means no one's making more than 30 bucks an hour to do this work. And those who have remained are working back-to-back shifts as 911 call volume 
soared from about 600 a month to more than a thousand. Liz DeBerry, who is 44, became an EMT after watching the collapse of the Twin Towers on 9-11. On one particularly bad day this month, Liz worked 30 hours straight doing runs in her ambulance. She says she has PTSD now. Marco Navarro, 30, is a former Marine reservist who did a tour in Iraq. Marco's daughter was born two weeks ago at one pound, 13 ounces, and is still in a neonatal intensive care unit. But he couldn't be there for the birth, and he hasn't dared to go anywhere near her for transmitting the coronavirus. Estefania Castaneda, 29, wears a mask when she's at home 24-7, even when she sleeps, because she doesn't want to infect her two-year-old. All the EMTs say they have one call that sticks with them, that they think about over and over and over again. For her, it was the man who had collapsed on the floor, dying as his three children, wife and mother, stood over him, saying prayers in Spanish and begging her to please bring him back to life. For Frank Pache, it's the 50-year-old man who suffocated in front of him. One minute, they were talking. The next, he was dead. His lungs had failed him, and his wife was there watching her husband die. She saw it all. For Dave, the chief of the crew, it's that 18-year-old boy and his 56-year-old father from Peru. He says that sticks with him because his own son is 18 and he's 51. Dave has had to make dozens of decisions, big and small, over the past few weeks that weigh heavily on his shoulders. Many times he faces only bad choices. Earlier this month, all seven of the hospitals near Bergen went on what's called divert status, which means that they're too overwhelmed to handle any more patients. So they're telling the EMTs to go somewhere else. But Dave calculated that the next closest hospital was 20 to 25 minutes away, too far for a patient in cardiac arrest or respiratory distress to make it. A one-hour round trip, including the time to hand off the patient, would also mean leaving others who were calling 911 waiting and dying. So Dave ordered all his trucks to take patients to the closer hospitals anyway and said they could find the space. Dave laments the growing number of DOAs, or dead on arrivals, the people who have died in their homes by the time the paramedics can get there. The DOAs make him feel not just depressed, but helpless. In normal times, his team might see one, maybe two a month, or they might go a few months without one at all. Now it's six or seven a week. The county has leased two refrigerator trucks with room for 45 bodies each, but there's so much death that the waits for pickup can be agonizingly long. Families that have money can call a funeral home to come get the body. Those that don't have cash face a nightmare. It could be one or two days before a medical examiner can show up. Dave, who was a firefighter before he became an EMT 25 years ago, says he's never seen anything like this. As he put it, I have seen some awful things, but it's the repetition that gets me. If you go out now, it is a guarantee you will see death. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, President Trump announced in a tweet last night that he plans to suspend all immigration to the United States, a move he said is needed to safeguard American jobs and defend the country from the coronavirus. Trump, who plans to run for re-election this fall on his immigration record and his effort to build a wall on the Mexican border, 
has long been frustrated with the limits on his ability to seal off the United States by decree. An executive order suspending all immigration to the country would take the president's impulses to an untested extreme. Two White House officials say an order is being drafted and Trump could sign it as soon as today. The order, which was discussed yesterday among senior staff, would suspend nearly all immigration. They're unclear on the exemptions. For example, would migrant laborers be able to come work in the fields? But the rationale would be that Trump needs to prevent the spread of infection by foreigners arriving from abroad, and they hope that that could sustain legal scrutiny. It remains unclear what would happen if would-be immigrants could reach the U.S. and demonstrate that they're free of the virus. The White House officials say they think the order won't be in place long term, but the president's tweet last night caught senior Department of Homeland Security officials off guard, which gives you a sense of how much thought has been put into it. Halting immigration to the United States could affect hundreds of thousands of visa holders and other would-be green card recipients who are planning and preparing to come to the United States at any given time. Most of them are family members of Americans. Trump's critics say the president is trying to change the subject amid intense criticism of his botched response to this contagion. Number two, you've probably heard by now about how the price of oil went below zero yesterday. Who even knew that could happen? Well, it had to do with a specific supply of oil, West Texas Intermediate, and was tied up with the closing of the contract period for May delivery of oil at a time when no one needs any more petroleum, and frankly, they're running out of places to store it. The June delivery price for oil is still just over $20 a barrel. Yet even at 20 bucks a barrel, the price is still down 65% since the start of the year. And over time, this is going to devastate North American shale and Santar companies who have a much higher cost of production than the Arabs. Major U.S. oil companies have cut back spending on new wells by 30% to 50%, and oil field service companies have been laying off more and more workers every week. Some of our oil companies have started to shut in their wells, taking a serious hit to their finances. Because of the coronavirus, demand for oil is down an estimated 25 to 30 percent globally from earlier in the year. But oil producing nations have kept pumping it out through March and into early April as the Saudis and the Russians tried to bluff each other into cutting production. What that meant is that storage capacity neared the brink. Then on April 12th, Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin Salman, together with the main members of OPEC, agreed to cut production by 10 million barrels a day, or about 10% of global output. But that still is less than the decline in consumption, so the supply has continued to grow. Now, Trump hailed that Russia-Saudi agreement as a victory that would right the price of oil and save American oil-related jobs. It has done neither. Consider North Dakota. The major oil-producing state sits atop the back and shale formation. But the break-even price to produce a barrel of oil in North Dakota is about $45 a barrel. Remember, it's around 20 Canadian oil companies, which were also not part of the OPEC-Russia deal, have started to shut in their wells in the sand tar regions of Alberta, where the cost of production is also around 45 bucks a barrel. Nothing like this happened during the worst moments of the Great Depression or in the early years of the Civil War. And those were the two previous low points for petroleum prices. Number three, South Korean government officials are telling us that they see no signs of unusual activity within North Korea that would suggest there's any truth to CNN's reporting that U.S. intelligence officials believe Kim Jong-un is in grave danger after heart surgery gone awry. Kim's health has long been a concern due to the fact that he smokes like a chimney and is morbidly obese. 
There's been speculation that the 36-year-old dictator might have suffered some kind of illness after he failed to attend celebrations for the birthday of his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, in Pyongyang last Wednesday. But of course, information about his health is extremely hard to verify in the super-secretive state. The South Korean news website Daily NK, which is run by defectors, reported on Monday that Kim was rushed to the hospital after presiding over a meeting of the Politburo on April 11th. On April 12th, Pyongyang fired several short-range missiles into the sea. That's an event Kim might normally have attended, but the test was not reported on state media, so there were no images. Then on April 15th, Kim was not seen at unusually low-key celebrations to mark his grandpa's official birthday. At the time, experts said that could have been because the regime wanted to avoid a huge crowd gathering during the pandemic, or because he was trying to send a signal about downplaying his grandfather's legacy to elevate his own. At the very least, the reports and the confusion offer a reminder of the risks of instability if Kim were to die. His sister, Kim Yo-jong, represented her brother at the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea and is thought to be a key confidant of her brother. And last month, she issued her first political statement ever in her own name. Finally, let me conclude with a silver lining related to the coronavirus. Obviously, the contagion is testing a lot of couples around the world. We're hearing reports of COVID doors. But Kjeld and Lottie Preisler just got married in a Denmark church before a sea of empty pews. Exactly 55 years before to the day in 1965, the couple, then in their 20s, had gotten married for the first time in that same church in Copenhagen. The couple, both artists, had four children together. They owned a small pottery business that produced and sold ceramics. For a while, life was good, but a series of hardships ultimately led to their divorce in 1989, a time they both remember with unsettling clarity. It started when Kiel spent over a month in the intensive care unit battling cancer. Since he was bedridden and Lottie was Looking after the kids, the business went south, and then just as things were starting to look up, their home burned to the ground. The wedding album, priceless keepsakes, and so many memories all reduced to a mound of ash. Being apart, though, proved more difficult than staying together. After years of living separately, the couple gradually made their way back into each other's lives. Still, they endured more obstacles, including her declining health. A ruptured appendix left Lottie permanently in a wheelchair. Then last month came the coronavirus. In the wake of the pandemic, Kjeld suddenly wanted to get married again. So he mustered up the courage to propose again. He got down on one knee, no easy task for the 82-year-old, and he asked his ex-wife to marry him a second time, 31 years after their divorce. And she said yes. The contagion, he explained, made him realize the time is now. Every hour, we're in this unique place where we almost face our own mortality. So we hold tightly to those who we care about the most. The groom looked at his bride and he said, quote, We simply cannot live without each other. They then celebrated their second marriage on a Zoom conference call with their four kids and nine grandkids as the family toasted the newlyweds from four countries. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, April 21st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.